Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater Podcast. While we're in the coronavirus lockdown, I'll be presenting weekly interviews with playwrights that I've conducted over the past several years, either when they've come through with a new play or when they've written a novel. In honor of Black Lives Matter, an interview with playwright and screenwriter Terrell Alvin McCraney, recorded in 2014, as he had two plays produced in the Bay Area, Head of Passes at Berkeley Rep and Choir Boy at Marin Theatre Company. Both plays eventually made it to New York to excellent reviews. Since the interview, he won the Academy Award for co-writing the screenplay of the film Moonlight, based on one of his plays, and wrote the screenplay for the Netflix film High Flying Bird. Tarrell Alvin McCraney is also the author of the acclaimed Brother-Sister Plays trilogy and most recently created the TV series David Makes Man, which aired on the OWN network. I guess a place to start is with Head of Passes, which is about a family and a woman named Sheila during a storm who've gathered on her birthday. And this originally came from Steppenwolf. You said in an interview that this was inspired, in a way, by the book of Job. So go through the process of how you came to think, well, what am I going to do here? Well, the book of Job was something that was very interesting to Tina Landau and myself as a starting place. And for the majority of the time, we spent really reading and investigating the book as intellectually as we could, but also, you know, with any great text, um, you begin to feel intimate with it, it, becomes intimate to you. And so we just began excavating it as best we could with the actors in the room, reading the play around the table for about a week and a half. And the question of a crisis of faith, the question of everything you thought was the way or the order of the world reveals itself not to be tangible. What do you do or how do you react and how do you survive? And I think to me that was the impetus for uh, Head of Passes, just geographically. The Head of Passes is uh, the mouth of the Mississippi River. And we think we are pretty sure of how you know the Mississippi runs from the north of America down to the south. But then it gets to the mouth of the river and we begin to learn that it does not pour out into the Gulf in the way we thought it would. It doesn't quite act the way we think it should. And I think setting the play on a piece of land that doesn't actually go the way we think it does. But it's a human need. There's some human need in trying to figure out order. There's a human need to place order on things. When things good or seemingly good happen to us, uh, we often attribute it to something that we deserve, especially as Americans. We like to think of we deserve, you know, the house, the car, and the kids going to college and the prosperity. It is That is somehow a right to us. And when things go bad, we th- we also attribute that too. sometimes. We say, you know, there's some force out there doing this to me. So we begin to try to ascribe a kind of order or a kind of um, faith, a belief base on that. But then there are these moments that shift all of our thinking. And then how do we maintain what we believe to be true 
in the middle of that became really important to us. So we wanted to set the plane of something contemporary. I wanted to talk about a perspective that we rarely see in the American theater, African-American woman uh, who is older than the age of 50, dealing with what we think of as faith and how um, events in her life can cause a crisis of that faith. And what does she do and how does she deal with it? two directions to go let let's go back further uh have you always been you know read book of job i mean you obviously came to the director or did the director come to you and said let's look at book of job tina came to me and said what do you think of the book of job or what do you know of it and i said i am aware of it <laughs> and i've and i've read it as a kid and and i'm interested in the story of it for sure but again, what ended up happening was less um, less what one would think of as an adaptation of the Book of Job and more a starting off point. So we say it's inspired by, meaning there are elements in the Book of Job, those larger questions that the book brought up for us that we then decided to create a play and make, uh, turn into a play. You've got your setting now. You've got the idea of this woman. Somehow that turns into a full-length play. Where do you go from there? I rarely write plays or I don't think I have written a play. And if I haven't, it was really bad where at the end of the day, it doesn't ask a fundamental question that I do not have the answer to, which is, uh, for in this case, what is faith and how does it change? How does the operation of it change? Once we find that question, you sort of designate, how does that Petri dish grow? I could describe the process. It's quite boring, though. It's like, but you could say, you know, oh, I want you to write about unrequited love. And then Chekhov goes into a corner somewhere and he writes The Seagull. I mean, how the characters get involved is kind of boring. But once they get there, it's you can see at the root, the nexus of that start is that main question of unrequited love. Well, in this particular case, since you're working with actors, as opposed to, say, just writing a play and submitting it, does that mean that the actors themselves kind of generate their own ideas of the way they play what already pre-exists, and then you look at it and go, okay, I could work with that and take that further? In this situation, no, although that happens sometimes, especially at an ensemble theater like Steppenwolf. Tina's working on a project right now where the actors are sort of feeding into what the, what the, play, what the shape of the play is. Um, in this case, it was more a form of us reading the Book of Job. I went away and created characters and brought them back to the table. I came to the table with a group of characters that I thought the play needed, not the other way around in this instance. Sometimes, though, you do, and you always write in my, with an actor in mind, or at least I do. Oh, really? Sure. And then it becomes, must be very strange if you're seeing a later version of the play with a different actor. No. I mean, that's the thing about good actors is they come in and they bring something different and new to the character. You start seeing the character in a different way, which is less strange and more exciting. You said before we went on the air that this version at Berkeley Rep is quite different than the version at Steppenwolf. How, how does that work? What happened? After the Steppenwolf performance or production, we noticed that we wanted to investigate in the question even further, the question of faith, and make it as personal as possible. I really believe that the more personal the story is, the more universal it somehow gets. So we wanted to investigate that even further. And Tony Ciccone, who is the artistic director here at Berkeley Rep, said to us that he was interested in that investigation as well and asked if I wanted to do more work on it. And I, and I, and I said I did. So I've done a great deal of rewriting. And then that becomes the next version or the final version at some point. You don't know. 
sure. I mean, plays are living things. So, you know, at some point I, I have to walk away from them. Otherwise, they'll keep changing everything. I mean, I think Tennessee Williams did how many uh, drafts or quote-unquote production versions of Cat on the Hot Tin Roof? I mean, you, there's this version. There's the version that the, the state has. There's the version that there's kept in a vault that they only use once. And, you know, they're living things. Different actors bring different things to them. Different venues bring different things. So, you know, that's the great part about the theater as opposed to other forms of, of performing arts. Do you ever see yourself going back to the brother-sister place then? No, because no one asks me to, so I think that's good <laughs> a good job. I mean, they they sort of, you know, no one asks me to come in and explain to them things. And if I did, I always change a line here and there, So, and then it'll just start from that. Well, let's talk a little bit about Choir Boy, which is coming to Marin Theater Company in mm-hmm. June, uh, Terrell Alvin McCraney. Uh, this takes place at a prep school where the main character... In the choir, Ferris, Mm -hmm. and he's African-American and he's gay, and the play deals directly with those two elements, right? Or at least gay-seeming. Gay-seeming. Well, I mean, how does one designate a kid gay? He never says he's gay in the play, and unless you see him in an act of homosexuality, I don't know if you can title him gay. Right. So I think, but he, he has a, he's effeminate and therefore, you know, he's characterized by his peers and sometimes the adults is gay. As a uh, African-American gay individual, you're dealing with these kind of issues on a regular basis in your work because it comes out of your own life, right? On some level. Sure. But I think everybody has some form of acceptance or sexuality that they have to deal with, even if they're non-conforming or conforming. In Choir Boy, what was that original impulse? If Book of Job brought you to Head of Passes, what brought you to Choir Boy? I really wanted to investigate the story of young African-American men outside of the quote-unquote urban form. I really wanted to see or talk about the legacy that we're passing down to them in terms of the history, an American history, sure, but even more specific in African-American history, what we're passing on in terms of our lineage to them and what we're expecting of them. Oftentimes we hear people say, where are the black leaders? Where are the young black leaders? Where are the young black men who are leaders? And we expect of our leaders to be highly individual, yet also in the black community or in America in general, we oftentimes pressure people to be a part of the norm, um, to be like everybody else and to be fit through a guise where we see them as like us. And exceptionalism sometimes can become a bad word. And so I wanted to talk about someone who is gifted, exceptional, and how we are training them, quote unquote, allowing them to grow in a way that could benefit the community or not. Is the community allowing, do we have room to let those kind of energies be nurtured? Or are we self-sabotaging ourselves by trying to make everybody conform to be exactly the way they are? I mean, And I don't just mean that. And again, I I keep saying this because um, there's a duality in my mind, but more truthfully at the sense, human beings and especially Americans, we we don't allow in our education system room for the individual. It's almost a, a rush to make sure everybody is exactly the same. And in that, are we quashing the ability for individual voices to help nurture the growth of the community? This, of course, isn't A question in education with the uh, Common Core and the testing that somewhere along the line, the arts 
gets left out of the equation completely because it's something that's on some level non-testable. Yes, that is absolutely true. I will take it a step further and say the art of humanity. I mean, the humanities are an art. And to allow a student to be able to read and interpret or to debate or to challenge ideas is something that we're missing. You can't challenge an idea on a test. The test is asking you if this is the answer you're supposed to write down if that is the answer so that you can pass this course. But we all know that the people we think of as genius, the people we think of as innovative, the people we think of as standard bearers, but also trailblazers have taken some idea like being able to fly or being able to sail around the world or being able to navigate via satellite. All of these people took an idea that everyone said was one way and bent it another way. And that's how we got growth and change. And how are we allowing our young people to think that way? How are we allowing them to be innovative, to take the ideas of before and turn them into something new or to turn them on their head so we can see them in a different perspective? Because again, the new, the only new thing in the world are the people that are coming into it. We know that there will never be scientifically, there will never be another one of them. We've made a new that and through their perspective is where we get growth. But if we keep stifling them to be like we were in 19 whatever, how are we eliciting and, and, and calling for that growth? So that was a very important question in choir boy to me because Ferris is not only gay identifying, but he also has a femininity about him. He's also sharp. He's also, he doesn't know how to keep his ideas to himself. And I think it's important that we watch out for those people in the community. And also the choir boy ends up being about a group of boys, not just Ferris who all are individual and unique in many ways and how they kind of get glossed over for the sake of the school's pride, for the sake of graduating a class, for the sake of making sure a reputation or a legacy continues. Um, and is that more important than the individual voices of our young? It seems to me, Terrell Alvin McCraney, it seems to me that while the specifics are not autobiographical, or they could be autobiographical in some respects, what we're looking at is, for you, an individual who was recognized fairly early on as a special individual. I mean, you yourself, you know, in working with people like August Wilson and going to, you know, special schools in getting your plays produced while you're still in your 20s, you're looking at it from the perspective of a person whose exceptionalism is recognized. Sure. One of the things that is important, especially in this day and age, to think about or to know is that no matter how much people will tell you you're exceptional, at the end of the day, I walk out into the street and I'm a black man. And I'm reminded by this society that that exceptionalism, the exceptionalism that we quote unquote will write down on a piece of paper does not allow me any sort of passport out of that, nor would I take it. But at the same time, I'm, I'm, it's not going to cover or cover me from racism, from misogyny, from patriarchal uh, hierarchy. And so my job is to continue to use the access that I do have to raise the voices of those who cannot. And I think, sure, I'm certain that every writer, it's interesting though, because I, I had this thought the other day. I don't remember reading many interviews with white writers where people ask them if it's autobiographical. And it's interesting to me that that happens. I, I read a lot about Arthur Miller. I love Arthur Miller, but no one ever asks him, is the crucible about him? 
and maybe it's because it's in, set in Salem and they know that he's, he wasn't in Salem. But at the same time, those themes are clearly in his life. There's infidelity, strife with neighbors. Clearly, those themes exist in the human life. But somehow he never gets asked, you know, is, is Willie Loman him? It's never asked if, you know, if those can be attributed to who he is. And I just think that's interesting because what he writes seems to be universal. And again, I, I'm not Arthur Miller. I haven't achieved that kind of status. So maybe once I get there, people will think of the themes as universal rather than biographical. Terrell Alvin McRaney, from my perspective, having interviewed a lot of writers, what I see is an autobiographical theme set within a non-autobiographical framework. I think all work. Who writes about things they can't access? A lot of people try. <laughs> well, sure, but I think in last this long, I mean, there's something you, there's something universal about the specific. All I'm saying is, no, I never went to an all boys prep school. I went to an art school that sometimes felt like it had no rules, even though we certainly did. In high school, certainly, I was never bullied. We had counseling. We went and talked about feelings. We had mediators. We had a supportive group. Our principal was supportive. We talked to them. Um, we were not used to pimp out the school. We were not used as a, as a, a financial gain to the school. All we had to do is continue our art form and, and do it to the best of our abilities and keep a, a grade to maintain. It was a public school, so you didn't have to pay to go there. So none of that is biographical. And I didn't have a relationship with a, a young man in the school who happened to be also trying to be a minute. Like those things just didn't happen to me. So those aren't autobiographical. What is autobiographical is that I am very concerned about the way we treat young, young African-American men in this community and in our community and in the education field, um, in the world of education. And I wanted to focus on that specifically and, it, and pull out as much of that world as possible so that we can begin that conversation. Terrell Alvin McCraney, I want to go back. Now, you were born in October 1980, October 17th, Arthur Miller's birthday. And I guess this is the uh, New World School of the Arts High School in Miami that we're talking about. Your interest in theater, how did that arise? The interest in it, I don't know. I know that I was always in it and, um, and performing in it, and the interest to stay in it or not to leave it kept coming by the programs I was allowed to be in. I had a, I was fortunate enough at an early age to find access to public programs or social programs that allowed students to perform and or work as performers. So um, I've been doing it since five as an actor. And then at the age of 13, 14, I got a job writing for the Village Improv Troupe in Miami, which is a, a rehabilitation program that hired a group of students under the direction of Teo Castellanos to do prevention theater, peer-to-peer -peer education using the vehicle of theater. And I did that from 13 till almost 20 while going to performing arts high school and acting. So I was writing plays, writing small plays to go perform in halfway houses and juvenile delinquent centers, and then also studying Stanislavski and Chekhov and Shakespeare and Grotowski and everything else in high school. So by the time I got to college, I had a pretty well-rounded and experienced education in the theater. And you got into Yale School of Drama. Well, that was after DePaul University, which I went to for four years for acting. And then I went to Yale for playwriting because after four years of acting, you certainly don't, well, at least I didn't want to go into school for three more years for acting. Had you thought about going off to Hollywood and trying to make it as an actor there? No. Mm -mm, no. Well, you also did some improv? Yeah, early when I was in high school. But most of my work right after or in undergrad, 
I worked with Peter Brook on a play called The Suit. And um, then I worked with David Cromer on a play called Blue Orange. And then I worked with Tina Landau at Steppenwolf on a piece called Theatrical Essay. So I had a pretty amazing time working with some incredible directors right out of school. I mean, you know, David Cromer directed that incredible Our Town. And um, and Peter Brook, of course, is Peter Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then it created a lifelong relationship with Tina Landau, who was directed about six or even maybe six of my plays. Uh, what was the first play that was produced professionally outside of your school? The first play that I'd written? Yeah. Brother Size. Was performed my second year at the Yale School of Drama under the Radar Festival. Well, actually, before even before that, it went to a theater in the UK, which I can't remember. I think it was Soho. It started having readings there, and then the play picked up momentum after we did the production in my second year at uh, Yale. What prompted you to start that as the first of a trilogy? I didn't start it as the first of a trilogy. <laughs> just, what happened? What happened after that? Though? I just wrote it, and it was a good play, I think. I liked the play a lot, and Great we play. performed it, and um, I walked away from it, actually. I started working on another piece, which was called Wig Out. I went away to study at Balliol College in Oxford, which is a program called the BADA program, the British American Dramatic Academy. We studied Shakespeare there, and I had jet lag, and at night I was just kind of writing aimlessly to go back to sleep. And by the time I went back to the States, on the plane ride to the States, I sort of just looked through the files that I'd written, and I'd written about 40 to 50 pages of a new play, and that was in the Red and Brown Water. When you're talking about uh, 40, 50 pages of a new play, you're talking about like dialogue. You're talking about some just of it, some of it was monologue. Some of it was just story. I mean, again, it was a big block of when I when I write most of the time, I put things in a big block of language and I have to go through the editing process is me going, oh, what is this? And put it in to assigning it to people and taking it apart. Your voice is a very distinctive voice. There's some Yoruba in those early plays. I wish. I mean, I don't speak Yoruba, so I don't know. The stories are based off of Yoruba myths, for sure. They were all told to me in English, and or more so even Spanglish. It's a mixture of trying of verse and and prose of everyday language and you know theatrical language. When you when you're on stage, there's a there's an immediacy to how you speak, and we know that we can't talk too long, otherwise the people will get um, bored. Sometimes they get bored anyway. They still fall asleep. So, but there's something in the language that you want to have quick, but also not too artifice. So, you know, you try to find balance with that. Have you ever thought about working, uh, say, in prose, writing a novel? No. Why not? I don't have the patience. I love novels. I shouldn't say I don't like. I love novels. I read them all the time. What I should say is that I didn't come to writing from a um, from a literary standpoint, I came from a performative way. I was performing and then I would have to go write it down. So even now the act of putting a play down for me is more about me listening to my instincts as an actor and putting them down on the page. And that's a little different. I would have to, I don't know how I would do that writing prose. What was the last piece you acted in? I think I did a workshop of 11 and 12 with Peter Brook in Paris. I think that was the last time I was on. No, that's not true. I did a reading of Wig Out with Tina in Atlanta. I think that was the last time I was I performed. Do you miss acting? Sometimes, but rarely. Could you see yourself acting in your own place? I hope not. Acting's hard. <laughs> acting is so difficult. And I just, I, I love actors. I think they're amazing. And I liked acting a lot. 
But the amount of energy, especially in live theater, that the actor has to summon to do the job well, once you know what that is, you kind of go, I'm either going to commit to this insanity fully or I'm going to back away very slowly. So I chose to sort of back away just a little bit so that other people can do it because it can be thrilling, but it also, it just takes an enormous amount of energy um, to do it well. Some people get on stage and kind of just sit there and you think, oh, well, mm, I don't know. But when you see a great actor up there, you can tell that they are using the force of God to get through <laughs> these pieces and, you know. Terrell Alvin McCraney, I read in an interview that you want to write a ballet. Is that correct? I tried to write a couple of ballets, but that's, again, it's about taking inst physical instinct and putting it down on page. The relation of music to your work. You've talked about how important music is in your work. Have you ever thought of working on even a musical? I have, but I'm not very good at writing lyrics because <laughs> I can't sing. So, I mean, I think, again, if I could sing or maybe if I took some music lessons, I would be a better lyricist. But I've been fired from a show because I don't write very good lyrics. You, you were fired from a show? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. What happened? I got fired from a show. I mean, <laughs> just, and I was like, okay, cool. I hear that. When you're working on a play or when you're deciding to do a play, it's obvious social issues play a role. How do you see social issues in terms of your art or in terms of art in general? Oh, I always harken back to the quote, and I'm sorry to be quoting someone else. You know, Peter Brook talks about plays, good plays, uh, dealing with what we would think of as interpersonal relationships, but then also dealing with what we think of as inner spatial or inner spiritual relationships, and then plays dealing with person and polis. And that the, if they deal with all three of those, you're sort of in a good place. Well, when I think of a play to write, hopefully whatever the question is at the end of the day hits all of those three areas, that it deals with what is happening in the state of the world, but what's also happening in a sort of larger spiritual aspect. And then what's happening interpersonally, romantically, intimately, brother, sister, siblings, you know, that kind of intimacy. As long as those three things are being sort of compounded and, and, and made palpable in the piece, I'm usually for it. Um, sometimes they veer more towards a quote unquote social issue, but I think there's always somehow that that relates to us in a more, in a larger, more global way. And I'm just interested in that usually. Are you ever worried about putting in too many contemporary references? No. Why not? I just don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't avoid it or? No, I don't avoid it. I just don't worry about it. I mean, I think, I mean, when I go and read some of Shakespeare's plays and there's clearly some contemporary reference that nobody knows what he's talking about anymore 500 years later, we usually just go work around it. So I think... At the end of the day, you kind of go, yeah, well, there was something of the day that made sense then, but what remains? What remains true to us now in Julius Caesar? Um, what remains true to us now in Lear? We can suss out the things that don't make any sense anymore or have, or have stopped being relevant, but the, there's so many things inside and that I hope to remain relevant. And again, I'm not comparing myself to Shakespeare. I'm just mostly mentioning that mo that people put contemporary references and plays, but we can still go to Angels in America and see how very valid, you know, Pryor's monologues are even today. Terrell Alvin McCraney, two questions. The first is screenplays in Hollywood, and the second is what are you working on now? No, I'm not working on anything except at a passage just now. And I definitely would love to work on something for the medium of TV and film if they come along. 
You've been listening to a 2014 interview with acclaimed playwright and Oscar-winning screenwriter Terrell Alvin McCraney. High Flying Bird is available on Netflix. Moonlight is available on both Canopy and Netflix. And David Makes Man is streaming through DirecTV, but can be purchased through several streaming apps if you have cable or you've cut the cord. I'm Richard Walensky.